This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. Uh, just next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Kate Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio Sirius XM Channel 132 every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. So how are you doing this morning, Shane? I'm having an excellent morning. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. It's been a it was a reasonably good last week of the NFL for me, so I had a pretty good week there. Yeah, a lot of uh, kind of exciting comebacks this last weekend, actually. Yeah, I was actually at a very interesting game, but before I get to that game and what was interesting about it, um, obviously the first half hour of our show, we always do our What Caught Our Eye in Sports segment, and again, Shane and I will talk about what caught our eye in sports and statistics, but again, if you want to join the conversation, again, call us at one eight four four wharton and jump on in. And then we have two great guests in the uh, bottom of the half hour, or bottom of the hour, we have Bill Connolly, who'll be coming from SB Nation, someone who's been a longtime contributor to our show. And then we have uh, Josh uh, Scott as well, who'll be talking in the nine o'clock hour, right? Josh Miller, sorry, in the nine o'clock hour, who's going to talk to us about one of my favorite topics and something I've done research on, which is the hot hand and does it actually exist? And then, of course, in the last half hour, we have another great segment, which is always do we do our money ball matchups and we'll be talking about the NFL as well. So let's start with you, Shane. You know, you said you watched a lot of NFL this week. Anything catch your eye? Yeah, well, there's a couple really kind of interesting comebacks of, of you know, in, in different ways. So, like, the, the Bears-Giants game was a really interesting game to watch. I mean, A, I, I don't think many of us expect, expected the Giants to hang with the Bears that entire game, and they ultimately ended up winning. Um, but... On the way to winning, they blew a ten minute a ten point lead with like ninety seconds or something like a minute forty one seconds left. And given that they've kind of changed the onside rules and everything like that, that's that 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 I think is pretty rare. Is, is is to blow that kind of lead with that little amount of time left. Yeah, so I didn't see the game, so I assume the Giants were up, right? Yeah. The Giants were up, up by 10. By 10. And so what Shane's talking about is you can't actually put, like, nine men on one side of the field for the onside kick because that's going to lead to too much of a scrum and possibly injuries. You can't run before the ball is kicked, so therefore your guys yeah. can't have a running start, which means they're all flat-footed when the ball is kicked, and it has to be essentially five men on each I side. I think I heard at the time that it was only the third successful onside kick this entire year, and I'm not even sure if those are, you know, this was one that was, yeah, I mean, when, when the other team anticipates it, it's that much harder to How succeed. How high so. would you guess the win percentage was for the Giants at up, no, they, ended up, they ended up winning the game, but let's well, ignore right. that for a second. Yeah. How high do you think the win percentage was? It um, must have been at like 95% at least. for, for a, like With a 10-point lead with 90 seconds left. I mean, who knows if those models take into account the change in rules for the onside kick. But yeah, no, I, I, it must have been up at like 95%. Well, so that's certainly one interesting yeah. game. Let me ask you a question. How much do you downweight, if you will? We could talk about updating. So I think we all agree the Bears are likely to be a playoff team this year. Yeah. How yeah. much do you downweight Almost them guaranteed. by losing a game like this? Like, do you say to yourself, well, they're still likely to make the playoffs, but if they can't beat a, at the time, let's call it three and eight giant team. Yeah. You know what? They're not going far in the playoffs. They're not, you know, maybe could we have constructed a scenario where the Bears 
threaten, if you'd like, the Saints and the Rams in the West, in the NFC? Or do you still believe, hey, you know what? The playoffs are the playoffs. Totally different thing. Yeah, they're not getting home field, but sure, they could go into you know they could go into the Rams or they could go into the Saints and win the game. Or well, does this game change anything in your mind? Let me counter ask, classic psychologist. Let me let me answer your question with a question. Uh, do you think the Patriots are are are, are doomed in the playoffs because they lost the Lions or the Titans? No, I would say no. I would say right. they're not. I but think, again, I think, but we I mean, have a strong prior for the Patriots, true, and I have true, full expectation. Not, by the way, yeah. I don't know what the odds are on this. It'd be interesting. Maybe our, my producer Matt Datz can put it up on the screen. What are the odds the Patriots run the table? Like, I, I mean, I'm putting it like I don't, I'm going to joke when I say this here on Morton Moneyball fans. I'm going to say ninety five percent. I think they lose this weekend, but uh, but I mean, in general, I, I mean. My my the the point of that question is more that I think even the best teams have one or two of these inexplicable kind of losses, you know, during the season. I mean, I think the Patriots maybe are kind of a a, a weird example because they always have like I, I feel like they always lose to one or two like random teams, bad teams. Um, on in the, the playoffs way to, or at the end no, of the season? At the, no, I mean during the season. Yeah, during the season. I mean, and so I kind of put the Bears getting beat by the Giants in that same category. I mean, I think the Giants are also not as bad as their record would suggest, etc. Um, but I think, I, I think the strength parameters would agree with that. Uh, but at the same time, I do. I, I I guess in long-winded answer to your question, I don't put a ton of weight on one loss to a, a even if it was a, a legitimately bad team. By the way, just to be clear, you know the Patriots are at Dolphins this weekend. Yeah. That's the game you think the yeah. Patriots are going to lose? Brady always loses in Miami. I mean, he doesn't always, but that is... Look at the record of Brady in, like, hot weather in general and Miami specifically. Well, that's... They, a, I mean, he lost that last year in Miami. Well, the well, okay, the NFL betting lines has it at minus 8.5, which would certainly yeah, put no, it I somewhere mean, like an 80-20 I mean, or 75-25 when, when game. I, when I say they're going to lose this week, I mean, I'm not sure I'd actually put money on that. I mean, they are obviously favored and for good reason... But this is a game that I feel like I don't know. Miami home game. Miami home games have always been a problem for the Patriots for whatever reason. What's actually interesting is the next two games. If I have it correct, I know the Patriots mm-hmm. are at Dolphins. I believe yeah. after that, I know it's uh, the week after or the week after the Patriots are at it's the, the Steelers. Steelers. I think it's the week after that. Okay, so let's te- let's play a doomsday scenario out for a second. Because no. right now, if you look at the odds, the Super Bowl favorite. For, from the AFC, and, and rightly so, is the Patriots, even though the Chiefs have the best record. The Patriots mm-hmm. are sitting in the two-seed right now. Let's play the doomsday scenario out where they lose to the Dolphins and mm-hmm. they lose to the Steelers. Now, of course, they're going to still win the division, but you, you might as well say goodbye to the one or the two-seed yeah, if they right. have five they losses. Have two, that's right. So now, all of a sudden, I mean, it's interesting to me that they're... Not an overwhelming, but they're the favorites to win. Because you agree, if that doomsday scenario happens, mm-hmm. you would put their odds of making the Super Bowl and winning the Super Bowl, I mean, I don't know, 25%? Oh, yeah. No, much lower than that even. I, yeah, no, that's right. I mean, I, I just think you can probably pay out those same doomsday scenarios for any of the teams kind of contending with them. So, um, no, I think, I mean, losing the buy, the buy is very, very important. I, I, well, I we mean, know it, that it, it essentially doubles your odds. That's exactly. It basically doubles your odds of making it to the Super Bowl. You could make an argue a little larger because then the next game you play, you're actually more likely to win because you're the home field team in that game. So it's mm-hmm. not only do you have to flip one less coin, but the next coin you flip is actually a little bit more in yeah. your favor. Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, that's right. I mean, well, no, I mean, if they won the, are you talking about in the, the AFC championship game? Like the actual 
actual dis- difference between the one no, and I'm two seed? No, I'm saying if they're the two seed, yeah. and let's say they play the, let's say everything goes to chalk in the first round, so they end up playing the three team, are they at home or are they away for that oh, game? Oh, okay, I see. That's I see. all I was referring yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, and that's so, right. In the divisional round, they're more likely to be at home if they're the two seed. I got, I, yeah, they, they would be at home for their first playoff game. That's all I'm saying. I'm saying, but, so yeah. not only do they not have to flip yep. the three versus six coin, yeah. but the two versus three coin is more in their favor if they're yeah. the two seed. That's, that's all right. I was referring yeah, yeah, to. No, so you could argue right. it more than doubles your odds mm-hmm. of winning the mm-hmm. of winning. No, it. that's right. And, and I mean, so I, I think it, you know, and I still do think that they're kind of set up pretty well for that buy. But I don't. I, I when when people say they're the odds on favor to go, come out of the AFC to win the Super Bowl, I mean, I guess any one team has to be. Um, but I, I actually think it would probably be KC at this point, By the way, in before, my opinion. Yeah, before we move on from this, just uh, quickly, we, but we should move on to other football, NFL stuff. Uh, Brady has a career 6-9 and nine record in Miami, thanks to Matt Datz, our producer. 6-9 and nine is there not... There we go. Last time I checked, Very that's... Very un-Brady-like. That's under 500. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's number one. Uh, second thing I would talk about is, you brought up an interesting fact, which is, you know, a lot of us, when we do statistical calculations, we say, oh my God, what would happen if the... Uh, Patriots lost the next two games. Well, you brought up something. How do we know that the Texans won't lose yeah. the next two? You know, we always focus on, well, what if the doomsday... But you just said I mean, it's probably Texans, equally likely... Or- Texans not a good example because their schedule is butter. But, like, you know, I mean, KC could easily win, lose two games. I don't know. You think the next game is butter? You think Colts at Texans, the way the Colts are playing right now? Well, I don't know. Or do, the Colts of, like, a few last few weeks or the Colts of last week where they lost 6 nothing to Jacksonville? Well, that was not a particularly good showing, I must admit. No, I mean, I mean so... Yes, I, there's still a lot of uncertainty. There's uh, and the AFC. I mean, I guess the NFC is fascinating too. But the AFC is especially fascinating because there's three or four teams, the kind of one shooting for the sixth seed. Um, that we just, I mean, Tennessee, Indianapolis, Denver, you know, Baltimore. Essentially, all these teams are essentially at 500, and yep. we just, I don't know whether any of those teams are good. I Miami. Mean, picking, Miami as well. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there's a lot of teams kind of in contention, and none of them kind of stand out as being particularly impressive. I mean, they've or they've all had horrible games, and they've all had very impressive games. And I, you just don't know what to make in that kind of situation. So, while we're still on the NFL, and it's a good time to talk about the NFL, and if you want to join the conversation, if you have any NFL questions or any other questions about sports and analytics, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also, as I said, email our producer, Matt Datz, at business radio at SiriusXM.com. What did you think about, well, a couple things that caught my eye in sports this week. What did you think about the firing of Mike McCarthy from the Packers? I mean, let me just say a little bit. Um, His career record is 125 wins, 77 losses, and two ties. That's a 620 winning percentage, which, you know, if you're over 600 in the NFL, that's a pretty strong winning percentage. He's 10 and 8 in the playoffs. But of course, you know, we're a what have you done for me lately, while he has won a Super Bowl, you know, and the Packers were close a couple of years. They really haven't been a major player over the last three or four years, partly due to Br- Rodgers, some injuries. But what did you think about the Mike McCarthy firing? Yeah, I mean, I think it was time, you know, in, in, in the sense that, I mean, I, I, I do sort of believe, you know, his play, his in-game play calling and, 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 and st- it has been holding back the Packers, at least for the last few years. It just seems like he you know, wasn't, you know, was kind of behind the times as far as NFL, you know, kind of cutting edge NFL, you know, thinking, especially when you have people like Sean McVay and, and, and stuff like that operating in the same conference. Um, firing a mid-season, I mean, I, I feel like for, I don't, is is that the first time like a Super Bowl champion coach has been fired mid-season? It might be the first time. 
And so that to take that kind of unprecedented step, I mean, it says to me that basically Aaron Rodgers was especially tired of Mike McCarthy, and they just kind agree. of they had to get him out of there right away. I, why they, you know, given that their playoff hopes are basically dead at this point, why they would do that midseason as opposed to waiting till the end of the season? I'm not sure I see any advantage of that, and it's a little bit disrespectful. So. It's unclear to me why they did it. Unless you want to interview, quote-unquote, interview whoever's going to take over interim Mm -hmm. and say, can this person do the job? That would be the only reason to do so. That's right. And, I mean, it'll be interesting to see if they bring in somebody from the outside or promote from within kind of in a permanent way there. I'm I'm, I'm sure Mr. Aaron Rodgers will have a lot to say about that. Yeah, since the start of last season, by the way, Mike McCarthy is 11-16-1 as a head coach. Yeah. So that's, you know... Have, not, you heard, have you heard the latest conspiracy theory that I think is kind of fun? No. Aaron Rodgers got Mason Crosby to miss that field goal at the end of the Arizona game. So oh, Marky, come on. McCarthy gets fired. No way. Well, I, I called it a conspiracy theory. No, no, you don't think so? No. Well, it's a conspiracy. No, I agree it's a conspiracy theory. I agree, but it has no weight whatsoever. Because, you know, look, this is the way. You know the mentality of the NFL. They win that game. Yeah, they run know. the table. They're yeah, a playoff team. That's right. You that's would right. never. No, I, I mean, I. It's an interesting I, I, theory. I, I wasn't really bringing it up in any kind of serious way, but I mean, it does sort of the, the fact that that kind of even exists as a theory shows that like it's pretty apparent that Aaron Rodgers was done with Mike McCarthy. I think that's absolutely and, true. And so, I mean. I guess, you know, you could almost argue from the opposite perspective, given that he was kind of dead man walking in that position, why, ball, you, you know, maybe give him a few games off or something like so, that. So let me talk to you about something else that caught my eye, and it actually had to do with the Eagles-Redskin game, and it wasn't that, by the way, you know, at some point you do have to feel sorry for the Redskins, right? I mean, Alex Smith, yeah. horrific leg injury, now Colt McCoy broke his leg, and now yeah. they're left with Mark Sanchez oh, as their man. quarterback. That's, so you have uh, to feel, that's a real downgrade right there. But I, I want to talk about something a little bit different related to that so a couple things let's start with that let's start with that one how much you've gone from alex smith Mm -hmm. to colt mccoy now to mark sanchez yeah if you were going to project the number of wins just help our listeners think about it as a statistician how could you think about it at all which is let's even imagine you know the redskins are rough now they're exactly a 500 team but let's just say if alex smith hadn't been hurt let's say a couple games ago they had six games to play their expectation is three and three now you've gone to colt mccoy now you've gone to mark sanchez how would you think about the number of wins it might cost you? Because a lot of people say, well, we're going to lose out the rest. I mean, that's obviously a, a harsh prediction. Any way you could think about how many games going to your third-string quarterback yeah. it cost you? I mean, uh, it's hard to look at a historical precedent because you don't usually get down to that third-string quarterback during a season. Um, I but mean, you agree Mark Sanchez is, even though he is their third stringer, it's not like he's an implausible backup quarterback for an NFL team in the sense of could, you know. I mean, could, he's not implausible, but he wasn't a backup quarterback. I mean, that guy's been out of the NFL for a couple years. And I mean, when it came around to signing backup quarterbacks at the start of the season, his number was not called, right? So you believe that if I was to rank the top 64 quarterbacks in the NFL. Yeah. He would not be in them. No, that's correct. I, that's correct. I think he'd be somewhere outside that. I mean, he. You, you, I mean, I, I. I haven't thought about enough about it. He could be one of the best third string quarterbacks available. I don't know. Uh, but for those teams that even carry yeah, three, exactly. So uh, no, I mean, he is a real downgrade even over. I, I mean, I do think Colt McCoy was actually on the in, on the top half of the second string quarterbacks. Like I think Colt McCoy was a great backup option for the Redskins, and I think we we sort of saw that you know. 
They played playoff, fine. Their playoff odds didn't change substantively, I think, when Alex Smith went down. Um, so, I mean, they were basically went from somebody who is probably in, like, I don't know, the uh, top, maybe the top thir- third, but not much higher quarterbacks right. in Alex Smith. And then they went down to somebody who's in, the you know, maybe the 40th percentile of quarterbacks and Colt McCoy. And now there's at somebody who, I guess, you know, by, by, the, by our, our kind of argument is, is in, you know, the 10th percentile or something like that. Without looking at the page in front of you, and we'll get to Moneyball matchup, yeah. something just caught my eye. Um, Giants are at Redskins this week. Yeah. Okay. And of course, we've talked about who the quarterback is. And by the way, the Giants have won a couple in a row. Mm-hmm. Maybe have won three out of their last four. Yeah. Who do you think's favored in that game? Well, I think you'd have to take the Giants. Right. I yeah, agree. I think so. I, yeah, I completely agree. By the way, the line is Redskins minus two and a half. And it's at... at it's at Redskins. It's at Redskins. But, so again, hmm. let's think yeah. about it. What Vegas has said is that the... Mark Sanchez-led Redskins are basically an even pick yeah. on a neutral field with the Giants. Wow, I just don't I see don't, it. I don't, I don't feel that way either. I mean, it would be interesting to sort of see the Massey Peabody numbers because they do sort of so, – so that you, you coming back to kind of your original que- question, which is how do, you fact, how do you change their kind of winning odds coming, going forward? You know, I, I, a system like Massey Peabody actually does have a quarterback effect in there. And so presumably you could sort of take, you know, like, you know, Look at the difference between plugging in a 75th percentile quarterback to a 10th percentile quarterback and see how much that changes. So I would suggest taking kind of a a model-based approach like that, as opposed to trying the alternative to a model-based approach like that would be trying to look historically and just sort of see like, you know, among all the teams that somehow got down to their third-string quarterback, how many times did those teams win? I, I think what we would agree with is the following. If Alex Smith were healthy... Mm-hmm. And let's say maybe the Redskins are seven and five instead of six and six, whatever their record would be, and they were playing at home against the Giants, they would be a five and a half to six point favorite. I think at least. that's right. Yeah. I, do, I don't think they'd be a touchdown favorite. But, yeah. So you can make an argument. Do you and I agree that going from Alex Smith to see this is the interesting psychology of if you told me you're going from Alex Smith to Mark Sanchez, and I say it only is going to cost you roughly three points, you'd be like. That just doesn't seem enough. But yeah. that's what the math says. Yeah. But it just, as a fan, you're like, wait, yeah. you're telling me it's only a three-point difference going from Alex Smith to Mark Sanchez? Yeah. It, doesn't that seem way too low to it, you, even it, though you know that's what the math says? Yeah, and it, it does seem a little low, but I, I mean, I think that's, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I'm, I'm part, it's not like we're going from Patrick Mahomes to you know Mark Sanchez. So part of this is that Alex Smith, though, certainly better than Mark Sanchez, and certainly a... a I think even an above-average quarterback is just above barely average. above average, right? right? I think so. So maybe that kind of downgrade that we're talking about um, is would only be like three points. I mean, the Redskins are were not built ever to be an offensive juggernaut. They are a defense-first team defeat, anyway. Defensive team. And so I guess you could rash, rationalize that if Mark Sanchez just stays somewhat competent and hands it off to Adrian Peterson as much as possible. Maybe they do something. By the way, this is a perfect segue, but before I get to the segue about Adrian Peterson, this is Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host and friend this morning, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So let's transition to Adrian Peterson. I want to recommend a new statistic to you that we should be computing for the NFL. NFL and running backs. And one, maybe I haven't seen it before, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I'd love your thought. 
So Adrian Peterson, let me just tell you his stat line for the game, and you tell me whether you think it was a good game or not. Wait, let me finish. <laughs> okay, okay, uh, you know okay. where I'm headed. I mean, I watched the game, All so right. I think I know where you're going So with this. Adrian Peterson, if I just look at the stat line, had nine rushes for 98 yards. Is mm-hmm. that a good game? Yeah, no, I mean. It's fantastic, right? I mean, like who averages? Nine yards per carry. Ten, what, ten, ten, ten oh, yards nine? per carry. Yeah. Okay. Now, for those of you that watched the game, he had one <laughs> rush for 90 yards. Now, let's just do the math. That means he had eight rushes for eight yards. So have you ever seen, this isn't a joke, have you ever seen someone either propose a trimmed mean, and just for our listeners wow. out there, what a trimmed mean would say is you take somebody's rushes, and let's say they have 10 rushes. You take off, let's say it's a 20% trimmed mean. So you take off the top run and the bottom run, and then you compute the mean or the median. Yeah, I mean, just the median is just the a very extreme run, version of that trimming. 50th percentile. Yep. So Adrian Peterson's 50th percentile run might have been one yard. Yeah. Or it could well, have I mean, been negative. Well, I mean, would be one yard, presumably. Or, or we, don't know, we don't know exactly. He had a bunch for losses, so okay. we don't know exactly. Okay. Matter of fact, his median may actually be below zero. I remember <laughs> at one point in the game he had four rushes yeah. for loss. But <clears> regardless... Don't you think we need to look at is put this way, have you ever seen a statistic that looks at the distribution, not the total yards, not the yards per carry, but looks at the distribution yeah. of the number of yards a running back has gotten? Like no, whether it's an and, entropy and, and measure, mean, a standard right. deviation, a yeah. median something. Yeah, no, and I mean, it's a good point. I mean, and actually, it's a really good point that I really hadn't thought about, but it, uh, it it's kind of obvious. You know, I mean, as a, as a person who both follows kind of the, the sport sort of, you know, just for the in-game results as well as a person who follows a lot of the sport from a fantasy perspective, what you really do kind of want to do, I mean, you know, the ultimate quarter uh, the, uh, running back, or this would apply to wide receivers, I suppose, as well. Absolutely. Um, you know, is is somebody who's kind of low variance, who has a really a lot of consistency, and we don't actually compute that. Like, why don't we actually have like a standard deviation or or something like that um, for running backs? Well, let me I ask you. Know. Let me ask you a yeah. separate. That, question. It's a great question. Well, let me ask you a separate question. Something you just said, and I'd love your thoughts on it. Which of the following two running backs would you rather have? Someone that kind of quote unquote always runs for four yards a carry. Or someone who sometimes gets 25-yard runs, but on the other runs only averages 2.5 yards a carry, but has the same net. I'm saying, is yeah. high variance good for running well, backs or I, not? I, I mean, honestly, I'm not sure I have actually the kind of like technical skills in terms, in terms of scheme and stuff like that to answer that question. I mean, One literally, would, if someone could... I mean, this is the way I always take these, and you tell me if yeah. you think of the logic wrong. Obviously, if you could literally, infinitely run the ball... Uh, we know that's false. Yeah, and you could gain four yards a carry. Well, give it to the running back every time. You'd get a first down every right. time. Just have the person run into just, the end zone. Just, we obviously don't mean it literally yeah. that. But how do you? How would you even think no, about and I, that? And, and I mean, I think you know, if if I was viewing this kind of from like just one, you know, if I was pretending like there was only one team in this game, you'd want that consistent guy that always got you four yards. But I feel like actually predictability almost does a, some uh, any one player a disservice. In football, because the defense adapts. I mean, it's all about scheming and changing your game plan. If that person, that person couldn't be consistently getting you four yards every carry because the defense would do something about it. And so, you know, almost maybe, maybe the guy that's actually more unpredictable is valuable to your team in the sense that, you know, 
you know, the the defense has a, a tougher time kind of adapting to that. Well, if, you, if you've heard of any stat like this, you know yeah. of any stat like this, Shane and I would love to know. You can either call us at one eight four four wharton and tell us about the stat, or you can tweet to us at, at WMoneyball, yeah. or you could obviously email our producer, Matt Datz, and next week we'll make sure to bring it up, or even if you email us now at businessradio at SiriusXM.com, we'll bring it up in the rest of the show. I've just never seen yeah. a statistic that's looked at any factor of the... I mean, yes, they show the, the biggest run that... The, they always show... The max run, they sometimes show the the percentage of carries for losses, which is telling something about the distribution, but I've never seen anything that actually talks about no. anything other than really the measure of centrality of the run. And I'm, uh, I'm proposing no. that here on Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, no, and I mean, I, it's a great idea. I, th- I we, we need to get it branded as a Wharton Moneyball moment right there. Ah, um, there we go. And let's make sure we get credit for it. And I'm sure our associate producer and sound engineer, Danielle Bruno, will keep this sound clip. And so when it comes out a year from now, when somebody else takes credit, We'll have the date, by the way. Yeah. Today is December the 5th, right? 2018. This was here on Wharton Moneyball we at this time. We all will remember where we were when, Absol- you brought up when I idea. brought up this idea. So I want to bring right. up two other sports in our last few minutes for the last for the first half hour of our show that we probably won't spend a lot of time on, um, but ones you know I'm passionate about, uh, which are golf and tennis. So let's start out actually with tennis. So not surprisingly, the 2017-18 or 2018 season ended, and obviously the order was Djokovic. I think it was Djokovic, Nadal, Federer. Mm-hmm. That was the order. And I think it was like, I don't know, I'll make this up, the 10th year out of 11 or something like that where the, the three of them were in the top. I just read an article that says they true. this was an article done by, you know, looking somewhat at analytics but somewhat subjective. This will finally be the year where it won't be the big three anymore. Okay. Do they have a proposal for who gets in there? Not much. Okay. Not much of a proposal, but the idea is, you know, we have a 37-year-old Federer, a mm-hmm. 32-year-old Nadal, a 31-year-old Djokovic. Um, Djokovic did not win the year-end championships this year. Uh, I forget who won it. I don't think it was Zverev. It was, uh, well, Matt will put it up on my screen who won the year-end championships this year, but I know it wasn't. Matter of fact, the player beat um the player beat Federer in the semifinals and then beat Djokovic in the finals. So that was pretty impressive. Yeah. So I know we're, we don't do over-unders that much at this time of year, but if I had to go over-under on, let's say, three and a half majors, means all of them, mm-hmm. if I gave you, I'll give you the following players, okay? I'll give you Nadal, Federer, Djokovic. I'll even throw in Andy Murray, who's won some majors. Oh. You can have those four players. I'll take everybody else. Right. And three and a half. So basically, do those. Four do those players four players win all four of the majors? I guess I'll take the over. I guess I'll I'll, I'll say that this they, they 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 remain undefeated. Those four players in the majors uh, for one more year. One, one more year, year one you're more giving year. there. One more year. Just because, I mean, honestly, you know, between Djokovic, I mean, really, I think Federer, pro- I mean, I think I might have taken the over if you'd just given me Nadal and Djokovic, to be honest. I don't see Federer, I mean, possibly, but I don't see Federer necessarily winning another major. But, I mean, I mean, okay, so you're, you're basically, Nadal's got a modulo injury, Nadal's got the French Open. The only right? other he, person, he loses, the only other he healthy never, person that could win the French is Djokovic. Right. There's nobody. So, there's, so I'm, I'm just, guaranteed the French, um, and 
Yeah. No, I, I still I'll take the over. I'll take the over with those with those three players. You don't even have to throw in Murray. I think this is the uh, oh, it's, it's Alexander Zverev. Zverev okay. was the one. And by the way, he would be the person you'd have to say a Zverev. You'd have to say maybe a Del Potro. Maybe mm-hmm. you remember he made the yep. finals yep. of one. You'd yep. have to yep. say it's going to be somebody yeah. like that. I think this is the first year. I'm going to take the under. Okay. I think no, I believe exciting. one of these players well, you need is to, going, We need to get this written down. We need to... Uh, I think uh, just like I predicted this yeah. new statistic for football, I think I'm going the under. And I think it's going to be at... I don't think it's going to be at the French. Mm-hmm. I definitely no, don't think it's no, going to be no. at the French. I think it's likely to be at the Australian or it's likely to be at the U.S. Open. Yeah. I think those tournaments tend to have more upsets. I mean, grass is, you know... Djokovic is just so dominant. And like, Well, I think know. we agree Nadal is a heavy, 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 yeah. heavy favorite at the French, oh, assuming yeah, he's healthy. Guaranteed. And at the at, on the Wimbledon, it's, you know, you have to have to say either Federer or Djokovic. Yeah. I mean, it's hard not to have them as the... Oh, so here we have, we have the... Favorites right here, thanks to Matt Datz. Um, so he's got Djokovic at, that's an interesting number, plus 137 for the Australian. So, I don't know, almost about 40% odds. You have Federer at plus 400, Nadal plus 550. You have Zerev at plus 900, so basically about a 10% probability. Right. And then Murray at plus 1400. And then. So, so, so Zerev, and you were saying this is the most likely one for Zerev, basically. Australian. This is the most likely one, I would yeah. say. You're, you're, you're happy with your over here. No, I'm happy with my over. You're yeah. happy with your over. The other thing that caught my eye in sports is, um, you know, there was this, I don't even know want to call it a golf tournament. It was 18 players that Tiger Woods invited to this tournament in the Bahamas. It's called the Hero World Challenge. It actually counts towards... <laughs> is it really? Yeah. It actually counts towards the FedEx points and all this stuff. Tiger, is it in the Greek sandwich or is it in like no, actually no, no, a hero? The, okay. I think like a different hero, not the all sandwich, right. although that's an interesting one. Um, it was actually won by a Spaniard, John Rahm, very, okay. one of the top mm-hmm. 10 players yep. in the world. Um, Tiger ended up 17th out of 18 players. You know, didn't shoot horribly, but had nothing really going. Any concerns you would have? I mean, he basically said at the end of last year he was burned out. But do remember, he did win the last tournament of the year. And uh, just to remember also, Justin Rose ended up the number one player in the world. But you and I have talked about this. Two quick stats. Um, On the 18th hole of that tournament, it was a par five. He hit a shot into the bunker. If he hadn't gotten up and down from the bunker, Tiger Woods would have been the number one player. Yeah. And number two, Tiger Woods, the only reason he wasn't the number one player was he didn't play quite enough tournaments and the de- denominator was too high. Yeah. Any concerns about Tiger Woods? Which way do you have Tiger Woods? Is he going to have a better 2019 than he had 2018? Let's remember, he won the year-end championship. Mm-hmm. He was the back nine of two majors. He was leading. Yeah. Do you see him closing the deal? Zero point five over under. Does he win a major this year? Oh, it's. I mean, it's a great question. I think I would say no. He does not. But I think he. I think he. I think he's competitive. I I think he really does have. I think in kind of in expectation, he has a better year than he did last year in terms of like. I think throughout the year. I mean, you know. I think he probably he's that much farther away from the injuries that have been plaguing him, and you know I hope he stays healthy, and I think he has a better kind of overall year than last year, and I would not be surprised to see him at number one at the end of next year, but you know to win those majors, I mean it's kind of the you know it's always sort of I'll call it the like the old man rationale we kind of always throw out in the when we talk about these types of situations is that he's got to string together four good rounds in a row. 
And I just think it gets harder to do that with age. I, I completely agree. Well, this has been the first quarter of one, Moneyball. Uh, we've got a great three quarters to go, so stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm with my co-host and friend this morning, professor of statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of the two of us, Cade Massey and Adi Weiner, here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. I would imagine that a lot of people, we hope, will call in the next half hour for our guest, Bill Conley. Uh, Bill has been on the show many times. He's a writer for SB Nation, the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Podcasts Ain't Played Nobody, and the author of the 50 Best College Football Teams of All Time. You can also follow Bill on Twitter at, at SBN underscore Bill C. Bill, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host, Shane Jensen. Always a pleasure. Well, Bill, we got a lot to talk about. <laughs> a lot to talk about. So let's first talk about college football last weekend did you let's talk about first how it played out. Did it play out as you thought it would play out? Essentially, you know, the chalk happening, which means all the teams would win, although the Alabama Georgia game was certainly uncertain for a while there. How did you see the weekend playing out and how did it play out in your mind? Yeah, in the in the chalkiest of seasons that any of us can remember, I would say, you know, the fact that it ended with chalk made a lot of sense. And I I mean I was happy from a number standpoint, I was happy that Georgia did what they did against Alabama just because I I, I kind of my numbers had that as about a two as about a two or three point game I think and and uh, the the simple fact that the line was that high was making me a little nervous so I was happy that Georgia showed up like I thought they would they showed up a little more than I thought they would until or at least for about two and a half quarters or so before Alabama started adjusting on uh, defense but uh, yeah I mean it, it, this really has just been an incredibly chalky season and hopefully you know when that happens in March Madness or whatever you either get upsets early on and then you get a bunch of blowouts until the final four hopefully it's the alternative where you know maybe it was a little boring in the early rounds but the final four is great well let's talk about a counterfactual that didn't happen so i was watching intently that alabama georgia game suppose georgia had won that game what do you think the college football playoff committee would have done because let's just just for all of our listeners there we would have had an un, let's assume everything else stayed the same we would have had an undefeated clemson team we all know clemson would have gone we had an undefeated notre dame team that didn't play a college foot didn't play a championship game we both agree they would have gone mm-hmm. what would you then have done with a one loss georgia team which at that point i guess you would have to take georgia if they beat alabama so now you have a one loss alabama team a one loss ohio state team a one loss oklahoma team what do you think would have happened under that if you like doomsday scenario <laughs> Well, I think Alabama was so far ahead of the field heading into championship weekend that it would have been a pretty easy call. Um, you know, maybe you, you got Clemson number one, you've got Georgia and, and Notre Dame in some order in two, three, and I'm pretty sure Alabama gets the four seed pretty easily. Uh, there did there did feel to be there did feel like there was pretty good separation there, and I think you know the only thing the only reason Oklahoma ended up ahead of Georgia was Georgia had two losses. Uh, so in that scenario, I think it's a pretty easy call. Oklahoma gets an easy number five. Ohio State's an easy number six, but Alabama's an easy number four. Well, let me talk to you about another team that I've focused on, and I know my producer Matt Datz is smiling here because he knows exactly who I'm about to talk about. I've been a big fan of UCF the entire season. <laughs> so let me ask you a question. So it's one specific and then more generally. So do you? let's imagine the following scenario had played out. Georgia beats Alabama. Sorry, the other way. Alabama beats Georgia. Okay? So Georgia's got two losses. 
Let's imagine some miracle Northwestern had beaten Ohio State, mm-hmm. and let's imagine Texas had beaten Oklahoma. So every other major team has two losses, and we're sitting there with UCF with zero losses, Clemson with zero, Notre Dame with zero, and Alabama with zero. Do you think under that scenario, UCF could have gone, or they will never take a team like a UCF? I think the last two years have proven that they will never take a team like UCF. Uh, the simple, I, 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 I was expecting, I didn't think I was expecting a whole lot from the committee, but the fact that Michigan was still ahead of UCF in the final rankings told me everything I needed to know. Mm-hmm. It was like last year when I believe UCF beat Memphis, a, a ranked Memphis team, or an almost ranked Memphis team, and Mississippi State, a three-loss Mississippi State beat a bad Arkansas team, and Mississippi State hopped UCF um, You know, some, sometime in, I think, early November of last year. Those were two probably the most revealing rankings that the committee has given us. Uh, so I, I, it's just not going to happen. And, and, and that's infuriating, but I think it, it's proven even in a situation like Houston back in, I think, what was that, 2016, uh, when they were coming off of the Peach Bowl win, and then they also had Oklahoma and Louisville on the schedule. But simply, simply playing a, a, a G5 schedule, which obviously you don't have a choice but to do because you, you can't up, like, apply and get accepted into the Power Five, uh, simply playing that schedule is always going to, to bring you down in, in the committee's eyes, and it's... And, I don't see how that changes unless you go to eight-team field. So that's another question I was going to ask you. Do you think this will lead eventually to an eight-team field? Because, you know, at some point, some of these schools, like also, you know, it just happened that we're not really discussing the Pac-12 at all, but let's imagine Washington or Washington State. There was a point where you as well, and I know if Washington State had won out, then... They ha- they would have been a one loss team sitting there, and so, certainly the Ohio States and Michigans of the world wouldn't mind taking having another shot at this thing, right? Yeah. So. so how would you? How do you? Do you think this is just, or do you think? Do you think we're going to lead to an eight team field at some point soon? Well, I mean, one of the guarantees in life is bracket creep. I think we've figured that one out, and and so yeah, for whatever reason, we can assume it's going to happen. I just I'm curious about the timeline on it, and I'm. You know, they have a chance to basically create a system that, that actually guarantees everybody in FBS can start the season thinking, you know, we can make the, we can make the playoff. We can win uh, the national title, even like Louisiana Monroe, technically, if they go to a system where if you get to eight teams, you have, I guess you include every conference champion. That seems to, to mm-hmm. be a pretty yeah. uh, agreeable point. And then you also include the G5 representative. Uh, a lot of years that's going to be Western Michigan getting destroyed by Alabama or whoever in the first round, but sometimes it won't. Like You can't say that UCF, if they had gotten the eight seed last year, that they would have absolutely lost to the one seed Clemson. Um, you know, it's, and, and this year, this year as well, like they they would probably play, uh, I guess probably Clemson in this scenario in the first round, and and they'd probably lose. But they'd have they'd have a good shot at least if Milton was healthy. Uh, they are a top ten team. My numbers, my S&P Plus rankings have them eighth. I think they had them right around there last year. Uh, this is a top ten program, and they haven't lost. That's the, that's the other part of this whole thing. They haven't lost since the, the whatever minor bowl game they went to in 2016. That it, at some point, you've got to give them a shot. Well, theoretically, at some point, you have to give them a shot. Clearly, the committee disagrees with that. But uh, you know, until we until they lose, we don't know who they're going to lose to. Well, let me ask you a related question. Um, who do you think? I mean, we've had this discussion with Cade Massey, who's obviously uh, one of our hosts here on the show many times. Do you think the job of the committee? is to pick the four best teams, or do you think the job of the committee is to pick the four most deserving teams? And do you think in this particular—let's talk about this year also—do you think those aren't the same set of four? 
Yeah, they're rarely the same set. And I think the committee does itself, in many ways, the committee does itself a disservice in this regard by continuing to uh, insist that it's the best teams that they're picking. Because it's not. I, you know, there, there has to be a penalty for losing games. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't just pick the – because, I mean, again, Georgia, Ohio State last year might have been – might have had the – when we're saying best team, we're basically saying highest ceiling. Ohio State probably had the highest ceiling in the country last year, but they got blown out by Iowa. You have to be – penalized for that in some way and so to to insist when uh, that it's the best teams when it's not and when it shouldn't be there has to be a level of deserving involved uh it it really just it's like the weekly rankings they don't really serve a purpose all they do is kind of cloud the people's vision of the committee and and the quality of the committee uh from week to week and and it's kind of a ridiculous process before i ask my next question i just want to make one last statement about ucf since it's probably the last time of the season i get to talk about them (laughs) until they route lsu um i will Mm. say the following let's just remember last year who did who did the national championship Alabama team lose to. They only lost to one team last year. They were yep. called Auburn. Who did UCF beat in their bowl game? Auburn. Who yep. did Georgia, one of the power most, everyone agrees is a top five team. Who did they lose to this year? LSU. I'm going to tell you right now, when UCF routes LSU in the yeah. Fiesta Bowl, I'm telling you right now, I'm going down to Orlando and I'm going to be at their parade for the all, national championship. We've all seen that the football football results are transitive like that. All right, you? Shane, give me my two minutes with Mr. Connolly here. Don't don't disrespect me by, by bringing in facts and transitivity here. So let's. I just have to say that, Bill, with you on the air. I'm, I'm going down to UCF and I'm celebrating their second consecutive national championship. Why don't we do this? We'll give, it a, we'll give them an SB Nation, Bill Connolly, Wharton Moneyball national championship, and they'll put up a band for that. Yeah. I will say they didn't really pay off for us last year because they uh, UCF fans just fight everybody now pretty much. Like they they have we were their biggest supporter this time last year and we've gotten nothing but yelled at by UCF fans. So we're not as sympathetic as we were a year ago, but it's still a disservice for sure. Well, let me ask you a question. As we're looking towards the bowl games, the the upcoming bowl games, and let's the, the first 5 that have caught my eye, and I want to ask you about how competitive you think they might be. So let's just start. Let's go down one by one. The, at least what caught my eye. I'm not going to go through all whatever 30-something bowl games. Let's talk about Alabama-Oklahoma. Now, right now, the, the Vegas line has a, basically a 14-point game. Is this as uninteresting a game from the Vegas line point of view, or is this the classic you know, immovable force versus the immovable rock or whatever that expression is? You know, Oklahoma is going to score on anybody. Or maybe they can't score on the great defense of Alabama. How do you see that game playing out? I think if Hollywood Brown, if Marquise Hollywood Brown is healthy for Oklahoma, they can score on anybody. He's going to be a big factor here because he is faster than anybody else on the field. He gives that kind of Tyree Kill influence to mm-hmm. everything else Oklahoma does. Uh, they still have C.D. Lamb. They still have a lot of other weapons if he's not completely healthy. But when he's full strength, uh, they are transcended. I mean, let's put it this way. So my offensive S&P Plus rankings are, are designed to uh, basically – I, I strap it on the, the scoring curve. Um, and so uh, it's basically an adjusted points per game figure. Oklahoma's at 52.2 point adjusted points per game. Second place Alabama is, is almost six full points behind them at 46.4. They are that much better than everybody else offensively, and I think they will be able to score on Alabama because of that. Problem is you got to stop Alabama too, uh, and that's probably not going to happen. So I, like, if you if you gave me a 14 point game right now, if you said that's the the final margin, I'm going to say that's going to be a, a, an incredibly entertaining 14 point game, like a 49 35 kind of 42 28 something in that neighborhood uh, with lots of fireworks. It should be a lot of fun to watch. I do think, I mean, from from my numbers, I, I it, it seems like th- this should be closer to a seven or 10 point game at least if Brown is healthy, um, and hopefully that plays out because. 
this does have fire. Like mid-season, when it was clear that this was going to be the chalkiest of seasons, I, I basically said at that point, all I really want uh, out of this season is, is Tua versus Kyler Murray, and, I, and we got that, so I'm, I'm happy. So let's move on to the next game, obviously, which is Clemson-Notre Dame. Right now, Clemson's a 10.5-point favorite. So, A, how do you see that game playing out? And in some ways, a lot of people are saying, you've rewarded, quote-unquote, Alabama with a harder game. Yeah. Matter of fact, Alabama's got a harder game versus Oklahoma than many people think Clemson has versus Notre Dame. How are you? Th- how are you seeing it? Well, they, I have I have them sixth in my rankings, but if you take out the th- the first three games with Wimbush starting, they they move up to fourth, just ahead of Oklahoma. So I mean, I, I'm not sure I, I agree with the whole harder game. It's going to be a completely different style of game, that's for sure. I don't think Notre Dame, even with Ian Book, is going to be able to score on Clemson very much. But there's a chance that they can rein uh, Clemson in as well. Notre Dame's uh, got a nice defensive front, and they they prevent big plays as well as just about anybody in the country. And if they can basically just force Trevor Lawrence to make a lot of plays, clearly he does not look like a freshman quarterback but in any by any stretch of the imagination but if you can just force him to make a lot of plays to score points then maybe you can get some stops force field goals maybe pick off a couple of passes and give yourself a shot so i think if notre dame is to make this a game it's going to be in like the 17 14 range something to that effect um there's a chance that nobody can stop clemson's big play ability at this point but notre dame has as good a chance as anybody uh so it's going to be one of those like the margin here might be shorter but it won't be nearly as fun to watch as alabama oklahoma so just before I move on to other games, obviously, um, something big happened. You're a Missouri guy, my understanding is, um, and you just mentioned Clemson. What do you feel about Kelly Bryant moving to Missouri? How did you, how, Do you see that as a big positive for Missouri? And let me ask you a different question, related question. If Kelly Bryant were still the Carter, uh, starter for Clemson, would you see that game any differently? Um, I, I think basically they moved to Trevor Lawrence for upside as much as anything. Bryant was having a heck of a year. He's completing two-thirds of his passes. Uh, he was still averaging, you know, take out the sacks, which there weren't very many of them, and, and he was averaging over six yards per carry. He, he seemed to have developed nicely from his junior to his senior year, uh, but just from a pure we've got a match to, uh, to his upside, who has the most upside here, they went ahead and made the transition to Trevor Lawrence. I think they would have been – I, I, you know, maybe some of the games got a little more out of hand with Lawrence, uh, but I think they would have absolutely been in the playoff because uh, Kelly Bryant's a good quarterback. He's not, uh, you know, he, well, he might not be Trevor Lawrence. He's not too attack of a low, but he's a very solid quarterback. And, and Missouri's now in a situation next year where they, I mean, they return basically everybody but Drew Locke. They, they have three good running backs. They've got a couple of uh, sophomore or freshman receivers who will be sophomores who had to step up more this year because of injuries. They're going to have a good line. So I think it's a really nice fit for Missouri, uh, and, and that should kind of solidify them being a preseason top 25 team and probably the second best or third best behind Florida in the SEC East at least. So it's not, I mean, you would agree it's not impossible. Like if I told you next year Missouri was the SEC East champion, you're like, you'd be surprised, but it's not like it would be the greatest shock of all time. It would take, I mean, obviously Georgia, Georgia might be preseason number one, so it would be pretty surprising, but uh, they would. They, it appears on paper that they'll have a very good shot at that number two spot at least. So let me talk about a few other bowl games that caught my eye, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on them. Obviously, I was sort of joking, but, you know, how do you see the UCF-LSU game playing out in the Fiesta Bowl? Yeah, I mean, Dave Aranda having a month, uh, LSU defensive coordinator Dave Aranda having a month to prepare for a freshman quarterback seems kind of scary. Um, I, I think with McKenzie Milton, I'd have straight up picked UCF. I know my numbers would have uh, in this game, but it does make me nervous that uh, Mac is now, like, he, he, he was looked a little overwhelmed at the start of the Memphis game, and then he, when he rallied, he looked spectacular. Spectacular. That was a great game to watch. Yeah, he, he was. he's clearly got massive, massive upside, and he's going to be a good quarterback in the future. Just... 
yeah, Dave Aranda is a really, really good defensive coordinator, and I think that's going to probably make turnovers are probably going to make the difference here. LSU's offense is so inefficient, uh, and and the, you know they're going to try to establish the run, the big burly man ball type that LSU likes to play, but they're not very good at it. Uh, I, I would be surprised if Central Florida, if the turnover margin is even, I would be surprised if LSU runs away with this game uh, by any stretch of the imagination. They manage games well. They played good defense. That should be enough, but UCF's absolutely going to have a shot because LSU can't, can't just dominate anybody offensively. Well, this is Eric Bradlow. We're here on Wharton Moneyball with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're talking to Bill Conley, a writer for SB Nation, the host of Podcasts Ain't Played Nobody, and the author of the 50 Best College Football Teams of All Time. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Let me just for a moment tie into your book, The Best 50 College Football Teams of All Time. How do you see, you know, there was four or five games ago... Alabama, this is the yeah. greatest Alabama team of all time, and the great, maybe the greatest college team of all time. Because finally we've got an, a, a great defensive Alabama team and a team that can actually now score the ball with Tua. So where do you see this Alabama team? Would they make your top 50 list? And if yes, how high are they? Yeah, I mean, as of a month ago, they were. this was probably the best Alabama team, which is a mind-blowing thing to say. Uh, Tua has taken on, like, four different leg injuries at this point, and, and clearly, um, I mean, he was still solid against LSU. Uh, he was solid at most against Mississippi State. They didn't need to do much, obviously, because they were pitching shutouts. Uh, and, and then, you know, against the Georgia team that seemed to be able to actually cover Alabama's receivers, first team all year that could do that, uh, he did struggle a little bit. It almost seemed like he just things had come so easily that he, he wasn't <laughs> – it took him a little while to get used to actually having to, to check down and, and look at more options. Um, but so over the last month, like two years ago, two years ago it was the same story with Jalen Hurts as a freshman quarterback. They were putting up numbers that, from an S&P Plus perspective, that nobody had touched since 1945 Army. Uh, but then they trailed off down the stretch again. It, they kind of peaked early. Uh, uh, then you know a series of really good defenses late in the year were able to kind of hem in Hurts a little bit and when nobody had been able to. So kind of the same situation. I think this team's upside, though, is, is, is higher than two years ago. Is, we, we didn't... This is a team that, uh, you know, the old Alabama standards, being able to run the ball uh, really well and, and defend the run and, and basically just completely hem you in defensively, they w- didn't really have to do that until the LSU game. They were giving up more points than normal. Their, their uh, defensive rankings were in the teens, God forbid. Uh, but they were so good at throwing the ball that nothing else mattered. Down the stretch, they leaned on the run game and the defense a little more, and they looked like old Alabama again, and that's been enough. So we only have a couple minutes left. Let me ask you three quick, let's call them rapid-fire questions here how do you see the heisman going uh this saturday night because people can submit their ballots early i still think two has got it but kyler murray especially and and haskins too but kyler murray especially did everything he could to close the gap late in the year yeah it's interesting the vegas betting lines has murray as the favorite right now and two a second but it's interesting that you pointed out about when those ballots were submitted and that's something that they get to do that so let's also go on let's imagine the season play uh, the the four-team playoff plays out as you and i think it might well, Alabama plays Clemson. Um, who do you like in the championship game? I still think Alabama. Clemson's defensive front is so good, though. It's, it's lived up to every expectation, and they can run the ball so much better uh, than they have in the past. Uh, so, I mean, I think they've done the most they possibly could with, to, to match Alabama's upside, but I still I just, I, I like Alabama. I, I never pick against Alabama, and I'm pretty much always right to do so. <laughs> well, let me ask you a related question. If you were going to build a team from scratch now to beat Alabama, would you beat it? 
would you build that team from the defensive side of the ball, like a Clemson, or would you build that team from an offensive side of the ball, like Oklahoma? Which way do you think? Do you outscore Alabama, or do you out-defense Alabama? I think if you want to be, if you want to win a national title over Alabama, you go with defense first. If you want to do like a one one off kind of shootout game, then then I think Kyler Murray is as good a chance as anybody uh, to do that. But yeah, I mean, building up the having that front seven like that Clemson has is going to give them. a It's shot. nice. I we're going to get a little bit of empirical. That. We're going to get a little bit of observation on that kind of dichotomy. <laughs> this uh, playoff. Yeah. Anything else catch your eye in the uh, any other bowl games or any other teams that we maybe you know we've talked about now kind of the top end? Is there any I'll call a team in the top twenty five an interesting bowl game that has caught your eye? Well, the the most interesting thing to me has has been how uninteresting the the the, uh, New Year's Six bowls are. Like they they are my least favorite of the bowls. UCF LSU is interesting, but Michigan Florida. Nobody wanted to see Michigan-Florida again, and so I'm really disappointed that we didn't get Michigan-LSU since they've never played before, and then Florida-UCF. I thought that would have just been dynamite, but I am curious what uh, Ohio State-Washington could That's be the game that really caught my eye a little bit, too. Yeah, like basically Washington sucks the fun out of every game. They play really, really good defense, and, and they do as little offensively as possible, uh, and, and it's, been a, it's mostly effective for them. So that could work. They have a great secondary. They could uh, kind of handle Ohio State a little bit, but Ohio State's also with their ability to make big plays and give up big plays. Uh, they can suck anybody into a really fun game. So I'm hoping for the latter there, but we'll see. By the way, isn't the Washington coach still the coach that used to be the guy at Boise State? Yes. Yes. So when did all of a sudden, I mean, you just mentioned, when did he start sucking the fun out of every game? <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, uh, he's, he's attracted more defensive talent than offensive, but it is uh, it has been kind of disappointing. They used to just march in there with chips on their shoulder and play and, and run their trick plays and, and have this incredibly smart, precise offense. And it is still is a pretty smart offense, but they do seem to, he knows he can win with defense, and so he doesn't take as many risks offensively. Well, Bill, we'd like to thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've been talking to Bill Conley, a writer for SB Nation, host of Podcast Ain't Played Nobody, and author of the 50 Best College Football Teams of All time and you can follow bill on twitter at sbn underscore bill c bill thank you for joining us here on morton moneyball thank you and now of course the next half hour we're lucky to have josh miller here uh, josh is an assistant professor in the department of economics at the university of alicante he's the author of a paper that we're going to talk a lot about surprised by the gamblers and hot hand fallacies a truth in the law of small numbers josh welcome to morton moneyball and josh isn't on the phone he's actually in here in the studio here in philadelphia well, thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, I just want to say one thing. I, Adam Senhorho, who's my co-equal co-author on that paper, um, and is also at the University of Alicante. So, um, great. Anyway, thanks for having us. Oh, it's me. great. It's great to have you on. It's great to have you on the show. So, first, I think before we get into the details of this paper, let's first talk about your background. So, like, what did you study as an undergrad? You're actually in the economics department, but you're working on the hot hand fallacy. So, let's talk about. First, your background. What was your undergraduate degree in? What What's your PhD in? What What was your dissertation and work about? Well, funnily, fun, funnily enough, both Adam and I, my co-author, we went to the same university, UC Santa Barbara, and so we both had the same ma- ma- major, economics and mathematics. Um, so I stayed on, and I did a master's in mathematical statistics, and then I went on to University of Minnesota, where I did a PhD in economics. Now, you don't... Okay, I'll let you... Uh, no, no, yeah. I was just going to ask you. So, yeah. no, I don't think that's strange at all. I mean, that's not dissimilar to yeah. our backgrounds. And yeah. just We just happened to both... Well, Shane and I are the same grad program at Harvard in statistics. We just went on to statistics. What First of all, what was your dissertation work on, and how does it does it relate at all to sports statistics or anything else? Or probably I see you shaking not, your head. Not no, at all. <laughs> what was what was it about? Oh, so my my dissertation work was I, oh, in one sense you could say it's related because it 
one element that you see common is outcome bias. So you talked earlier about mm-hmm. this idea that if, if they would have won the game, the coach wouldn't have been fired for the Green Bay Packers. You know, so you have yeah. this outcome effect and people overreact to outcomes um, and don't pay attention to, say, other maybe more diagnostic and important metrics because it has this kind of salience. And so part of my dissertation work was on that. Now, so would you call your dissertation work, I kind of know the field, are you a behavioral economist or are you more a pure what I'll call mathematical economist? Which types of things do you tend to do? Do you tend to focus on more the math side of things or kind of the psychology of economics, which could use math to explain that psychology? I would say I'm more in the behavioral economics, though I you know, I do have fun with the mathematics, you know, like bringing back your old training and having fun with it, but definitely that. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. So let's now mo- focus on the paper that you've talked about. Before we get into the details of the paper, um, could you just tell our listeners both what is the hot hand and also its history dating back to really, you know, uh, you know, in at least some of my early thoughts are in the early in the mid 80s. Obviously, there was a work of Tversky, but it's really back into the 70s. Could you tell us what's the hot hand and kind of what its history is before we get to your work? OK, so the hot hand and as defined in the original paper, it's not clear what exactly it is because everyone has their own idea. But the simplest way of thinking about it is you're just in the zone and the, it just feels like it has to go in. You're better than you usually are. People talk about success breeds success and things like this. So just to be clear, let's imagine we were going to say, let's take foul shooting for Mm -hmm. something, or let's even take making shots in the NBA as an example. Well, actually, before before we get to an example, uh, was there kind of a motivating sport or kind of sort of instance of the hot hand that kind of got you into this work, or were you just kind of just interested in momentum and and these types of issues in general? what got us what got us into it was this is a very famous result, this result from the eighties, where they wanted to take perceptions of randomness or misperceptions. People don't have a good intuitive sense for how random sequences work, and they wanted to see if it matters in the real world. So they went to basketball because they thought this is a good real world example. The stakes are high, you have practitioners, they have time to learn, et cetera. And they wanted to show that potentially their beliefs are wrong and that the sequences of shots are as if they're a coin flip, good enough to be a coin flip. And that became the sensational result that's always like often cited as the first example of a bias and we were very a lot of people are very skeptical of it and that's what brought us into it so let's just think let's use by the way for the next 20 25 minutes we'll probably just use the language of basketball to talk to our listeners here on yeah. Morton Moneyball about the hot hand is it as simple as the following and maybe it's more nuanced how about the following Let's imagine I've got some probability of making a free throw. Let's say it's 80%. I'm a good free throw shooter. I make 80%. Mm-hmm. Now the question is, what's the probability I make a free throw given I've made the last free throw? Now, if that's higher than 80%, would you call that the hot hand? Like, that's the way many people think about it. it means, if you'd like, the conditional probability yeah. of make, given you've made, is higher than the what's called the marginal probability, the probability yeah. of make. Is that the way you see it, or do you define it more in a nuanced way than that? Well, I would say that would be the operational way of doing it, if you're going to go out and measure it. Now, you know, what's actually causing it's a different story. But if you know that somebody's success is varying over time, then if they have a success, that's some signal that they're in a better state. Maybe not a great one. So... In practical purposes, you could treat that as your measure. Now, what many people have said over the years is that it's not... And by the way, I, you know, obviously, Tversky is no longer alive, but uh, I don't even know if Gilovich is alive anymore as well. Let's assume he is. If you were to ask them, do you think that they would say that the hot hand doesn't exist or people just haven't found evidence of the hot hand? Because those are two different things. It could be an effect, but it could be small. 
which is we as statisticians say, <clears throat> well, if you have a then, small effect, there's going to be low statistical power because you would just need yeah. an enormous amount of data to find it. What, Certainly you, that, I think, is kind of the rationale. We, I, I mean, the other one that I always think of is clutch-like playoff performance. You know, clutch performance in baseball is something that I feel like we kind of – most of people believe exists for certain players, but we would – we just – there's no way we would ever get the accumulation of data to kind of detect it in a statistically significant kind of way. Does the hot hand kind of fall into that, or, or is it, you know, a little bit more prevalent? Yeah, I mean, I th- so I would lean more towards the way Shane is framing it, and that if the hot hand, it could be a big effect, but if it's rare enough, it's still very hard to detect in data. Now, the, the consensus that came out of the paper, and I think they would agree, say that the hot hand was a myth, that it didn't exist. And that would have been their uh, view if we were to ask them, maybe not today, but maybe five years ago. So why did, just let me go back to Shane's earlier question. What was your thought about studying this? Like of all the things you could look at, did you think, I mean, one thing to think about is this is such a well-known paper. In fact, you know, in the field of, in the Y field, it may be, in marketing, maybe one of the most 10 to 15 most cited papers of all time. Like everybody studies and thinks about the hot hand. Is it that you wanted to say, look, we actually believe it does exist and we want to refute this finding? Or what made you excited about it? And then I want to talk about your actual finding. I mean, it sounds like a kind of insane idea to take a paper that's this consensus canonical paper that everyone agrees with and you're going to go out and make it wrong. It's like it sounds like a recipe for failure. Um, No, we didn't see it that way. So we just saw some limitations in the original study and limitations in some, some of the literature, and we thought we could improve on it, uh, improve both, both on the data, you know, getting better data, getting better kind of situ- basketball situations and more data because of the, these well-known power issues, but also getting um, better statistical measures, something I've noticed that you've worked on. And we work, were working on in 2013, so we didn't see your paper. Ah, okay. So let me first talk just to yeah. make sure our listeners, and then, uh, Josh, I want to ask you about yeah. what... Uh, things you thought you could improve upon. Just for our listeners out there, the term of statistical power, just to be clear what that means, if there's actually the hot hand, if the hot hand does exist, statistical power says, what's the probability you will be able to detect it if it actually exists? And so statistical power is something you want a lot of. You want high statistical power. If an effect exists in the real world, you want to be able to pick it up. One criticism of the hot hand, something I've worked on, is that it's not so much that the hot hand doesn't exist, just that the measures used, the operationalized measures, are actually quite poor. So which of the two, again, did you want to, did you guys focus on? Was it the measures were no good, or the data was no good, or just theoretically and conceptually, people just had it screwed up? Which did you think it was? Well, initially, we thought we could get work on better data and better statistical measures. In the process of that, we discovered, and we're luckily enough, that there were actually fundamental issues in the way they analyzed the data. So it wasn't simply improving, there were mistakes made. So why don't we get into that? Yeah. Why don't you start with just this, the, uh, not simple, mm-hmm. what did Tversky and Gilovich, and I guess maybe a third author, I just... Uh, Robert Vallone. Vallone, uh, yeah, yeah. Tversky, Gilovich, Vallone. What data did they have, and what did they do? And then we'll talk about what your improvements might have been. What sure. did they do? Sure. So they had three kinds of data. So they had 76ers data. This is live ball, play-by-play data, shots from all over the place. Um, they had free throw data from the Boston Celtics, and they had what they called their critical test of the hot hand to control for the issues um, in the other data where they took the Cornell University basketball team to the gym and paid them to make basketball shots. And that study has been repeated a few times um, 
the, the, the Cornell one. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And, and so what did they do and what did they find? I assume what they found was there was no evidence. We could call it lots of things. We could call it Markovian structure. We could call it state dependence. We could call it serial correlation. Yeah. They found no evidence that in the some conditional sense, probability of making a shot, given that you've made a shot, has not... It, it, is indistinguishable from the marginal probabilities, I guess. What is that essentially what they found? Yes. Um, and they found, you know, importantly, because people think of streakiness and the idea that, like, the longer the streak, the more hot you are, it's a better signal that you're hot. Regardless of the length of the streak, they find that the probability of success, or they conclude the probability of success, isn't increased by making a few in a row, and it's not decreased by missing a few in a row. Yeah, that's an interesting, by the way, it's an interesting thing that you point out about, and it's also in your recent <clears throat> article, which we'll get to now, is there could be a cold hand. I mean, people talk about the hot hand, but maybe there's in some sense, you know, well, I got really hot, and now maybe, you know, wow, I'm overconfident, and now all of a sudden something psychologically could happen where actually the probability could go down. Yep. So that's another thing. I don't know if anyone studied that, but that would be another possibility. So what did you do to improve the work of uh, uh, Tversky, Gilovich, and Valone? Well, the first thing was figuring out what was the mistake, right? So I think it's natural when you want to say, let's say you want to figure out how often, you know, what the probability of success of somebody is. What are you going to do? You're going to have them go out and make a bunch of attempts, and then you're going to calculate how often they have success, and that's going to be your measure. Like if you had a coin flip and you didn't know the probability of heads, that's what you'd do. you just keep flipping heads. And that's and, and and but you don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. Right? Okay. No, I just want to. We got to take this step by step. Yeah, yeah. So there's nothing wrong with saying if someone takes a hundred shots, and let's say this is a random sample of their hundred shots that they would take, and they yeah. make seventy three percent of them. Yeah. They're a seventy three percent person. Yeah, that's like your best estimate. That's right? your best estimate. Yeah. Okay. So if you go out and you flip a coin a hundred times, and you want to know now, I want to know what the probability of heads is given three heads in a row. Well, the natural thing to do is look at all the times that you got three heads in a row collect those and figure out how often did you get heads, just in the same way. And it seems natural that would be your best guess for the probability of heads given a few heads in a row. And that turns out to not be true. Okay, so let me just make sure I'm understanding. I think I do. I just want to make sure. So let's imagine whether I actually flip the coins or I do it via simulation. Mm -hmm. I have a whole bunch of coin flips. They could be basketball shots. doesn't matter. They have a whole bunch of coin flips, and I'd like to know a very specific question. What's the probability of heads given heads, heads, heads? So one thing I could do is look at all sequences or subsequences that have heads, 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 and what's the next coin flip, and what fraction of them have heads? And you're telling me that that's not a good way to think about it. Yeah, so just to clarify, because I'm not sure what you mean by subsequences, let's just say every time you have a flip where the previous three flips gave you heads, we're going to include it in our sample. Could the previous four or five be heads also? Yes, but you're only, you're only looking back three. Okay, but I'm not restricting myself to own exactly three in a row. It's three or, or more. more. Three or more. Okay, yeah. so tell us what's wrong with that. So, okay, so what's wrong with that? What you will find, I mean, because the first thing you want to do is test this. You know, some, if you're a basketball player, you don't know what caused, you know, it's a black box. Before, but if, okay. Yeah, before we get to what you found, yeah. what would, if there is no hot hand, mm -hmm. what would we expect to see? That's the counterintuitive thing. So you would, we already know, if there's no hot hand, that the probability of heads given three heads in a row is the same as the probability of heads given three tails in a row, right? Or any sequence. Or any, for any, you know, if it's random. But... If you were to go out and measure it the way we talked about, you would find out that the, the percentage of heads that you get 
when you have three heads in a row is going to be less than the percentage of tails you get when you have three heads in a row. So just to be clear, I've got I got all these sequences. I'm going to only look. I'm going to put into a bucket all of the times where I've got heads, 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 and then something. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put those all into a bucket, and I'm going to look at the fraction of heads or tails in that bucket. And what I'm going to find, according to you, is that let's even just say the probability of heads was 50% just for the moment. The number of heads in that bucket is going to be less than 50% yes, in that bucket. that's correct. Okay, good. I'm glad I understand. Now you got to explain to me why. Okay, so there's the long explanation, which we don't have time for. So I'm just going to give you an intuitive explanation, which is inc- uh, incomplete. Th- okay. So as a researcher, you, you're looking... You're looking at the coin flips after they've already been generated, not before. Okay. And you're going through the sequence, and you're picking out all the times that you got three heads in a row, and you're taking it out. So if I take out a trial because it has three heads in a row before, what I'm using is I'm kind of using the information about what's happening next to it. And so one way of thinking about it is I'm going to have some number of heads in the sequence. Um, it's either going to be 50, 51, 52, if, it's, if I'm flipping 100 times. In any event, I chose that trial because the three heads occurred. Those three heads can't occur again, and I only have a fixed number of heads. So, so I've taken three heads out of the bucket, at, given a finite number of heads in the bucket, and so it's going to be less. That's an incomplete explanation because there's something else going on, but I don't think we have time for it. Okay, so yeah. let me just make sure I understand. Yeah. So there's a self one of the things we talk about as statisticians i'm sure economists do all the time yeah. is that uh, matter of fact as a both of us uh, were around don rubin long yeah. enough to understand yeah. the idea of selection bias and missing at random or how you select matters let's imagine in forget selecting and putting some to the side i've got this big bucket of coin flips that have 50% heads and let's just say the law of large numbers applies i flip a trillion coins half are heads half are tails so that's not going to change for the second now what I'm going to do is I'm going to select out some sequences that have heads, 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 and something. The thing is, by selecting on, I just want to make, maybe I got it wrong, but by selecting out heads, 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 and something, what's remaining in the rest of the bucket are more tails than heads because I've selected out based on heads. Therefore, there's going to be more a higher probability the next one is going to be tails. Now, you can't really have an infinite number of them mm-hmm. because, well, maybe you can, but then you'd have only a tiny little effect. But in any small number of trials, what's got to be left if I'm selecting on heads, the other thing has to be more tails. Is that the way to think about it or do I have it wrong? I mean, that's that's... So am I close I, enough? It's close enough. Um, I, I would I would say it a little differently, but I think it's close enough. I think it gives an intuition. Okay. So what what's the importance of this? So let's talk empirically. Have you now done new studies with new data, and have you found the hot hand? And I mean, so they could have a mistake, but you could right. still not and, find but, but the but hot this, hand. But this uh, this also I'll just sort of like I think remind. Just to clarify, this is a statement not necessarily – this is a statement about kind of the null, right? This is how – how if there was no hot hand, how these dynamics would operate, that you'd sort of have this kind of bias. Uh, you know, if you're selecting on a streak of results like heads, that you would have a slight bias against heads in that kind of next observation. Right. Yeah. So that's another way of thinking about it is that you have a stopping rule. So you're going to stop collecting data once you get a tails, Right. And so if you get a tails right away, you're done, and it's 100% tails, right? Right. 
and you're going to collect until you get a tail. So this is biasing towards selecting tails because you're stopping at a tails. Yeah. And that's a, that's, a, that's a very simple way. Of that's, another way that's another way of thinking about it. Yeah. So tell us what you found. So did you go back and reanalyze their data? Did you go back and collect better data? Let me ask a question. Let me start so systematically. Does the data have to change to actually do this study? Or could you just go back to the, you know, Tversky, Gilovich, Tversky, and Valone data, reanalyze their data and say, actually, there is a hot hand. Is that what you did or did you collect? Yeah. Do you have to so, have new um, data? So, so we needed the raw data. So Tom Gilovich uh, shared with us uh, the raw data. And so we went into that raw data and used the exact same analysis that they used for their estimating the size of the hot hand effect and just adjusted for the bias. And so what they found is that the, you know, their shooting percentage was roughly the same after hitting three in a row and missing three in a row. But if you adjust for the bias, um, in, the, in, the, in, in the world of the bias, you'd actually expect um, them to be worse mm-hmm. after making a few in a row than after missing three in a row. But they were shooting slightly better. And once you adjust for the bias, they shoot about 13 percentage points better on average, which is a bit absurd, right? It's like saying you're going from the median three-point shooter to the best three-point shooter in the league on average just for hitting three in a row, which is bigger than I, what I would expect in there's sampling error there. We can, you know. We'll get to that in yeah, a second. So yeah. we're, we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is yeah. Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics. I'm here with my co-host and friend, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. We're talking to Josh Miller, an assistant professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Alicante. Uh, we're talking about some of the work he's done, surprised by the gamblers and the hot hand fallacy, a truth in the law of small numbers. If you have a question for Josh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. So... Were you surprised, and I love the way you put it, because I'm always an effect size person. Mm-hmm. So were you surprised by the magnitude of what you found? Like if it's literally 13%, as you said, that could move you from a median player to a, you know, let's say 70% to 83% or something like that. One is the median free throw shooter. One's in like the top 10%. Were you surprised by the magnitude of the effect once you controlled for this bias? Yes, because we had, you know, Adam Sanjorjo and I, we conducted together a study with a Spanish semi-pro team where we had way more, a lot more data than any other study had. And our average estimate, of course, it was just eight players, um, that um, was five percentage points. Um, so it's actually much higher than what we estimated. Five is n- nothing to sniff at. That's going to accumulate over a season. It's going to matter. But, um, yeah. So let me ask you a question. Um, most people think of Amos Tversky as one of the greatest, certainly mathematicians, but mathematical psychologists who ever lived. How did they get this wrong? So, I mean, we all make mistakes. So, I mean, it could be a mistake, but, like, where does the mistake come from? Does it come from, was it a conceptual mistake? Was it, like, how how do you think about it? Because, you know, Tversky did win the Nobel Prize. Now, he didn't win the Nobel Prize for this. He won his Nobel Prize for prospect theory and everything mm-hmm. else. But how do you, like, where did the mistake come from? When you go back and read their paper, can you say, you know what, I kind of understand it. I understand why they thought about it differently. It's not an obvious bias. I think it's when we read it, when Adam read it, when I read it, we, ne- we we didn't see any problem with their analysis. We thought it was underpowered, like everyone else has mentioned, like you have mentioned, but we didn't see that it was a bias. Um, we've asked people that are professional statisticians, hey, look at this test. What do you think? They might say, oh, it looks underpowered or something like this, but what would you expect? Every, everyone will say, if they, unless they sit down and simulate it, will say, hey, it looks like you're going to get the same even with coin flips. And it could be, I mean, this could just be a, a really fantastic example. I mean, you sort of mentioned it uh, as, as part of your kind of 
the preamble to your to, to, to outlining your method is that we're actually humans are just really randomness true randomness is actually something that i think conceptually we have a real difficult time thinking about and this just could be one of those sort of subtle things that even the nobel prize winners among us sometimes have a difficult time thinking about true randomness so let me ask you, Josh, is there any implication of this? I know, are you a basketball fan? you a sports fan? Oh, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. A basketball fan? Yeah. I mean, yes. Is there yeah. any implication of this? Like, let me give you an example. Let's imagine a technical foul gets called. And all of a sudden, there's someone there that's made three in a row. I'm, I'm a Sixers fan. You mentioned even the Sixers in your the, – some of the data came from there. J.J. Uh, Redick, one of the great foul shooters of all time. But let's imagine Joel Embiid has made three or four free throws in a row so that your prediction would be that Joel Embiid, because he's hot, would actually be higher than the marginal probability of J.J. Redick. Do you ever see a time where teams would say, I'm going to put the hot shooter up there as opposed to someone who their marginal probability is better? Have you thought about the implications of this at all? I just made that up, by the way, on the yeah. fly, and I don't yeah. know if that's a good example, but I'm thinking it's not a bad example. Would you ever do that, or do you ever see teams doing that? I mean, I would be a cautious to advise a coach who has a lot more information than just what happened on the last three shots, right? So a coach can get a better sense of whether their shooting mechanics are consistent and other kind of richer measures, right? Um, if I weren't a coach and I were just ignorant, you know, you, you, have to, you, have to, you put me as the coach of the 76ers and I, I haven't been following and I don't know much about the players and I have to make a decision, yeah, I would use that information. But if I were the coach of the 76ers who has a lot more richer information than that, I'd be very hesitant to give that kind of advice. So one of the things you don't talk about, or maybe you do talk about in the article, maybe you could tell me about it, is one of the things we all think about when we're modeling data is time decay. So does it matter when those free throws were taken? Do you look at that at all? Like, suppose, you know, it's three in a row, but, well, let me ask a question. It was like, it's three in a row, but it was at the end of the game last week. Yeah, so not only that, or it was in the first quarter. So what do you think about the time delay between yeah. the events? This is a great question, because it gets into an issue that overlaps, that, that hits the reason why these measures are underpowered in so much of the data, which is measurement error. You know, if you think of a player who gets hot, they're going to get hot in particular moments. They're not going to be hot forever. And that's going to have a finite duration. So if you're looking at three in a row and they're spread across, you know, tens, 20, you know, you're getting a, a very weak, a much weaker signal than if they just hit three in a row in the last couple minutes. Right. And so you're going to get a, a lower estimate for what the true hot, it, hot hand is because you're getting a very weak measure of when they're hot. So, yes. Could you also talk about, I've always said, you know, why did the streaks have to be consistent? And what I mean by that is, why does it have to be three in a row? Like, 10 out of 11 seems more impressive to me potentially than three in a row. So I've even wondered at times, how do people even think about hot spells and what it means? Because most people like to focus on it has to be consecutive. But actually, no, it doesn't. So have you guys given any thought to that? Like maybe the way we're defining streaks is a streak shouldn't be thought of as consecutive. It should be a period for which, as Shane and I said earlier, your conditional probability, there's statistical evidence, it's higher than your marginal probability. I agree with you. Um, I think one thing we have to be careful as researchers is the degrees of freedom that we have. So if you look at previous studies, they've all tend to look at three in a row, two in a row. These are the standard measures. Once you are more flexible in defining hot hand and once interrupted, twice interrupted, streak of 10, things like this, you can start cherry picking the definitions that work for you where you find significance. So we wanted to focus in on the measures that have been used previously, just adjust for those studies and leave it at that. <laughs> All right, so I got, I got a, another sequence of questions here. Yep. So um, have you studied anything besides basketball? And if the answer is yes, 
What other sports have you looked at? Um, for streakiness, we have not studied um, any other sport except for basketball. Um, yeah. What would yeah. make it harder or easier? Let's talk about baseball. Baseball is yeah. a big sport here yeah. in the United States. We have a massive sequence of at-bats for players. Do you think, well, based on your knowledge of how large the data set is, um, maybe non-stationarity, every, do you think it would be easier to find the hot hand in baseball than basketball or harder? Um, easier. There are fewer uh, conf- what we call confounding effects. So you know, basketball is a strategic game, right? So if a player is doing really well, or if the other team thinks the player is doing really well, they're not going to get them open looks. Um, they're going to make it more difficult for that player. And so if you go and say, oh, are they going to do better when they're hot? Well, in the game, they may not, even though it's opening opportunities for the teammate, because it's not for free that the defense adjusts when the defense adjusts. But in baseball, there's fewer of these factors. Well, Josh, you actually yeah. bring up a fascinating point. Will <clears throat> modern data and technology change even how you define the hot Mm -hmm. hand? And let me say what I mean. Let's imagine I watch someone's set of 10 shots in a row. Now, based on, what's it called, track man data, whatever it is for basketball. Yeah, whatever the the different track is. Actually, those weren't equal probability shots because of the distance from the other player to you, the the, the length of the shot, etc. So now, actually... When you're computing your measure, you really need to take into account a varying baseline probability because those shots were of different and, difficulty and, and levels. You, and that's what I think would actually sort of – I was a little surprised that you said baseball would be easier just because, you know, I think of baseball like the, the, the most of the sort of definition of success of hot hands would be something like, you know, a, a hitter or whatever. There's an adversarial kind of structure there where, you know – the next time up, he's not necessarily been facing the same pitcher, so those probabilities kind of change. So, I mean, if there is a hot hand, you do have to kind of adjust for these different probabilities, just like you would in basketball with kind of conventional shots, which I guess is why, I mean, really it's only the foul shooting that kind of removes all this, right? That's kind of the ideal case. I, and the, I mean, I, I hadn't thought about it that way, but maybe this is why we've always looked at foul shooting kind of as the canonical case for measuring hot hand, is it takes away all that adversarial stuff. Yeah, so how have you guys thought about, you know, in the language of economics or statistics, how do you covary out other things when you look at sequences to say, you know, as, as Shane was just saying, making three jump shots in a row could be very different than making three foul shots in a row because of other factors that could affect it. Do you guys think about that at all? We do. Um, actually, one of the first uh, people to address this issue, because in the original study, they just they took, do not. Raw, they took raw play-by-play data. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so Justin Rao, who I believe now is at HomeAway. Absolutely. So he was the, he, he's a vice uh, president. So he was the first to go in and have, you know, he, he, he took the videos and recorded like how many defenders there were around and controlled for as, as much as you could at the time. Um, and just with that you know, number of defenders, distance from the hoop, um, found that the effect that they found in the original paper, which is they shoot a little worse after a few in a row because the defense puts more pressure, that disappears once you control, even for a few things that you would want to control for. But you still want to control for quality defender, the quality of the defense, all these things which are hard. Um, and others have gone after this. Carolyn Stein and John Eskowitz, they had this group um, at, at Harvard where they use the optical tracking data. Right. And they controlled for a few more factors and found that it actually reversed. And you have, it looks like there's a little small effect there. And there are more things you would want to control for. And you might, you know, if you could and you had enough data, you might be able to find something. So maybe yeah. in just the last minute or two, we've been talking about this work of yours, but, you know, you're a young man. What, you've got a big future ahead of you. What are you working on now that you'd like to tell our listeners at Wharton Moneyball about? So if we had you back on in a year, which we hope to have you back, what are you working on? It doesn't have to be about sports, but what are you working on in the future and right now? 
Okay, so right now, we actually, you know, Adam, Sanjuro, and I, we're both, we, we have some more interesting papers on the hot hand. Um, so we have several empirical um, projects. One, just going through all the different studies that have ever been done on this and seeing if the result we found in that study um, is robust and, and replicates in the other studies, and we find that it does. We go to the three-point shooting contest, and we look to see there was a previous replication and said there's no hot hand in the shooting contest. Once you collect all the data, which is on YouTube, and you can go there and record it, and you can buy the missing, we found evidence there. And then we've gone on and seen how this hot hand can be applied to explain gambler's fallacy, potentially, not, or why people may never uh, figure it out if they were to try to figure it out, like watch sequences. Um, and we have a few other st- projects that are coming off that. Well, I know what I'm yeah. going to have to do, given the work that I've done recently. I've called it clumpiness. There's a reason why. I'm going to have to send you our data and see if you can replicate our findings right. that, in our case, we find that customers do get the hot hand when it comes to buying products, and customers that get the hot hand actually buy more in the future, even conditional on the same frequency distribution. So you've bought 10 products. I've bought 10. I've bought them in a hot hand fashion. You've bought them in a non-hot hand fashion. The person that bought them in a hot hand fashion, if I look out of sample, will buy more in the future. And that was kind of the big paper that I wrote with our former doctoral student in statistics, Yao Zhang, which we published, which became big news in marketing. Like, marketers, uh, customers get hot. And then when customers get hot, those are the ones you want. So I'll be interested to see if we, if we take your work and apply it to ours if we get the same finding. Well, Josh, thank you for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. We've talked to thank Josh you. Miller, Assistant Professor in the Department of Economics at the University of Alicante. Uh, please look for his work on the hot hand, specifically a lot of his work, Surprised by the Gambler and Hot Hand Fallacy, A Truth in the Law of Small Numbers. Thank you for joining us on Morton Moneyball. Okay. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Shane. Great. It's been, this is the first three quarters of the show. We still have one quarter to go. Stay with us and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports, business, and statistics collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics here at the Wharton School, hosting this morning with my friend and colleague, Professor of Statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of myself, Shane, uh, Cade Massey, and Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM 132, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And you can listen to us uh, on our podcast replayed and we're also replayed here on Sirius XM throughout the week if you want to join us for the conversation please call us at one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. just had a great half hour with Josh Miller talking about the hot hand revisiting really one of the most famous topics in statistics that have been pointed out yeah. and I think it's fascinating research. No, I mean, I think it is. I mean, it's fascinating research kind of from a mathematical perspective. I almost think it's it's a fascinating almost, I, I don't know, call it a philosophical perspective, but I, I kind of just think a lot about how he, people really do, you know, I mean, half of the reason, you know, statisticians are around is people have a s- struggle to kind of think about conceptually what randomness means and the kind of things like outcome biases that we see all over the place, especially in sports. Um, so I, I just think it's a fascinating don't it's a fascinating example of the general kind of idea that we just don't think very well about randomness. Yeah, I think it's it's also it's about another thing which you and I have a very high sensitivity to given our training, which is when the way you get into the data set is selected yeah. after the fact, you should be worried that you're inducing a bias. Matter mm-hmm. of fact, my norm is if it's not random data, in other words, if the reason you're in the data set isn't yeah. randomized, then there's a selection process, meaning yeah. so, here's the data, and then I'm going to select some of it and put it into this other bucket. What Josh and his co-authors are saying is that selection process by which you take certain data, take it out of the 
big shot bucket and move it into this I'm focusing on these trials bucket, that induces a bias. And by the way, that should be a lesson for all of our listeners out here on Wharton Moneyball. Whenever the method by which something gets into the data is selected based on the past, you have a strong potential to yep. induce a bias. And that's what Josh, he's talking about a specific instance of this, you know, if you'd like, selection process, or as Don Rubin would say, yeah. if the reason you're in the data relates to something that you're trying to measure, then you could be causing a bias in that process. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I mean, like, it's sort of, you know, I mean, there's examples all over the place that people don't really kind of think about, like, you know, like, oh, why do these sort of defensive first players like in in, in, uh, in baseball struggle so much at the bat? Well, there's a selection bias there that if you if you struggle at the bat, you better be good defensively or else you would not be in the major leagues and we would not be observing that's another, you. That's, I mean, another, that's another great example that you wouldn't be even in the major yeah. leagues if you didn't have this compensatory. You have to sort of, it's, it's it, and it's very subtle and it's hard because we don't really, we have a lot of industry in terms of how to evaluate statistical models in terms of their quality, but these kind of selection bias issues almost exist outside of your modeling enterprise. And those that's something statisticians even struggle with at times. Well, let me just say, I completely agree. Um, and as you know, if you really want to do the right analysis, you have to model that selection yeah, process. that's right. And, and we you, don't do that very often because you know, it's hard. And just for those of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball, uh, our, one of my advisors, one of Shane's as well, Don Rubin, calls it ignorability or not. Can yeah. you ignore the selection process? And it's clear, in most cases, the answer is you can't really ignore that's the right. selection process. Well, thanks again to Josh Miller. It was really interesting research. Let's move on a little bit now to the NBA um, you know, we could talk about our Sixers, which I want to talk about in a second. But what the hell is going on in the in the Western Conference? Yeah. So let me just tell you what's going on right now. Forget that uh, Golden State is like in fourth or fifth place in the West, and we are twenty five games into the season. Mm-hmm. If I look at the number one team in the West right now to the number eight team, so one to eight, yeah, there's only three and a half games separating them from one to eight. And as a matter of fact. If I even want to go down, let's be clear, there's only 15 teams in each conference. If I want to go down all the way to number 14, the difference between 8 and 14 is only two games. So there's five and a half games separating 14 teams in the Western Conference. Is this parity? What do you think is going on? Oh, I, it's interesting. I mean, do you, hey, let me ask the question because you follow kind of NBA season, season better. Is this unusual? Even? Extraordinarily okay. unusual. All right. Extraordinarily unusual. For example, if we were to compare that to the Eastern Conference, I know here's what I do know. I know Toronto, the number yeah. one team in the East, is 20 and 5. I'm going to guess there's something like, oh, I don't know. Eight to ten games spread, or at least double yeah. the spread in the Eastern Conference than there is in the Western Conference. Maybe even larger than that. So this would be, I mean, right now there are fourteen teams out of fifteen. Yeah, Phoenix isn't making the playoffs. The other fourteen teams, yeah, they're there. No, and I mean, I, I, so, and have you seen enough? You just sort of mentioned, okay, we're twenty-five games in. You know, that's over a quarter of the season. Obviously, have you seen enough to sort of say, like, you know. Given the top eight teams that you thought were going to be in the playoffs out of the West, do you have have you seen enough to move the needle on those not being those same eight teams at the end? Like so, so it could just be that we are seeing sort of you know a little bit of a a ran- extra randomness due to the fact that we're only twenty five games in. Um, it's unusual, but unusual things happen in small samples. So you know. Have you seen enough to sort of say, like, oh, no, definitely this playoff team, this team that I thought was going to be in the playoffs at the end is definitely not going to be, 
and this team that I thought was going to be terrible is not is going to make the playoffs. Have you seen enough yet? Uh, no. Okay. But I think the two teams that have surprised me the most mm-hmm. in the most positive way is um I think Dallas. Yeah. I think, you know, I had never low expectations there, extraordinary right? Extraordinary low expectations. And this I think it's Luka Doncic, the mm-hmm. guy that they drafted in the yeah. first round. The guy can really play. Looks like a catch. Yeah, yeah. looks like he can. Remember, they traded up for him, too. He can really play. So that team has surprised me. And uh, we also had on, remember, from the Sacramento Kings. Yeah, we had, Luke Bourne. Yeah, Luke Bourne. At some point, we're going to have to say the Sacramento doesn't suck. Yeah. You know, they're they're near 500 or right at 500 now. At some point, you have to say they've played 25 games. What an ad for them that would be, by the way. We don't Just suck. Just up on the screen. At some point, you're going to have to say we don't suck. Right. Just to give you thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, for putting it up on the screen. So, let me remind everybody the data. In the Western Conference, there's a three-and-a-half-game separation between one and eight. In the Eastern Conference, there's a eight-game separation yeah. between one and eight. Between one and 14 in the Western Conference, there's a five-and-a-half-game separation. In the Eastern Conference, it's 14 games. Yeah, I mean, just that, that that's even more sort of telling that. Yeah, I mean, you know, because at least I'm used to the sort of hockey world where it's routine that you would kind of, I think, get a pretty small separation between, say, the top eight teams in the in, in, in on either side of the league. But to have it go all the way from one to 14, like to basically you've got your one hour or you've thrown Phoenix out of the comparison. But after that, you're like five games between 14 and one that's that is it's crazy unusual so let me also ask you if i had asked you at the beginning of the season i understand it's only let's say a quarter a little more than a quarter into the yeah. season who would be the top teams in the west you would have said golden state right yeah well they're well, not mean, they're not one of the top teams right now yeah they've had injuries you said houston yes i think if i'm pretty sure if the playoffs started right now houston's not in the playoffs yeah. i'm pretty sure now they're they're one of those teams in that mass between you know they have maybe 10 or 11 they're, they're just outside of the playoffs Denver and the Clippers yeah. are both 16 and 7. They weren't in anybody's preseason ranking. So let me ask you, let me also transition. Well, they, let me ask you, I mean, the Clippers at least would have been in the playoffs in your preseason rankings, they right? I mean, they, they, they're not, we don't, we were, nobody was regarding them as kind of particularly serious well, championship contenders. To, well, according to Matt Datz, here we go, the, uh, the over-under for the Clippers was 36 and a half wins. No, they okay. were predicted out okay. of wow. the playoffs. Wow. And they're now right. 16 and 7. The Nuggets, who are 16 and 7, at least those were they were predicted to have 47 and a half yeah. wins. So that's they're a little bit better. They're better mm-hmm. than pace. But no, I think there's a lot of surprise out there. I think the Clippers are playing better than expected. Um right now, uh Houston would be in 13th place by the way in the West. Wow. Wow. Well, I mean, again, we kind of expect that to change. If it doesn't, man, we're we're really looking at kind of a. So if it, if it doesn't change, if they stay in that kind of position, Houston, Houston, how shocking would that be for you? That the I mean, forget that just the missing the playoffs. Oh, it would be. I think is it Mike, is Mike D'Antoni right? Is the coach yeah. of the Rockets? He's fired. Yeah. If they don't, I first of all, let's remember. Unlike Mike McCarthy for the Packers. Mike D'Antoni's never won anything. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, he's been criticized yeah. for never winning anything given some of the talent that he's had on some of his teams. I think if Houston Rockets don't make the playoffs, you have to fight. I mean, you don't have to. Now, so let's say they're, they're, we're halfway through the season 
and they're still in, say, 13th or 12th or something like that, is he a mid-season firing? No. Because let me just say, by the way, this is, again, because of the distribution. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Maybe today we talked about distribution of runs for Adrian Peterson. Today we're talking about the distribution. They're only three games out of fifth place. Yeah. So they may, we may be sitting here next week on Wharton Moneyball. They've gone 6-1, and one, and we're like, the Rockets are back. <laughs> they're in fifth place. I knew it. That so, Tony got him out of that. Yeah, he's a great coach. Yeah. Signed him to a 10-year extension. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, nice look, outcome bias again. Though. There we go. Yeah. I think the other thing, there we go, Tying it to Josh Miller's uh, research, I think the other thing we have to talk about is, before we switch over to football, is we have to talk about the Lakers. At some point, we, I mean, not that we, you and I haven't been on the LeBron train forever, but this guy's taking a bunch of, you know, you know Brandon Ingram and, uh, you know, Kyle Kuzma. He's carrying a bunch of nobodies. Yeah, Lonzo Like he's Ball, done, basically, for the last career, decade. Right, yeah, his yeah. whole career. Yeah. I mean, you could say, you know... I mean, at some point now, people are saying they could. You know, they're fourteen and nine. Yeah. They it wouldn't shock me now if they were in the top four or five in yeah. the Western Conference. Yeah, yeah. I think LeBron's going to win a championship with the Lakers over the next couple of years, I and mean, probably not this year specifically. Probably but I, not. I, 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 I think he is. Um, and in some ways, I'm cheering against that because I'm not a particularly big fan of the Lakers. But in some ways, I'm cheering for that because I think LeBron James is the greatest basketball player to ever play the game, and I think this will basically demonstrate that for most people's minds. Because, of course, Michael Jordan has this incredible resume. Incredible. But I don't think Michael Jordan, I mean, and, you know, we could sort of argue maybe he never had to, but he never had to drag these nobodies to a championship like LeBron has been, like LeBron was basically doing in Cleveland for several years and now is going to do again. And not only that, I don't know of any player, let's assume he wins, let's say for a he wins one at least with the Lakers. Who has brought three entirely different teams? Obviously, he won one with Miami, two yeah. with Miami. He's won one with Cleveland. Yeah, no, you I mean, now had one with the Lakers. I'm like, that's uh, it's it's like unheard of yeah. that someone would do that. As a matter of fact, that's the one thing that let's suppose he ends up with four championships in his career, and let's even imagine he ends up. What's his record right now? He's three and five in the fi- three and six in the finals. Let's say he ends up. Four and seven in the finals, or something like yeah. that. Even though, I mean, first of all, he's been there eleven times. Yeah, that would be that would be there eleven yeah. times, and winning four with three different teams. I think that would be remarkable. Yeah. Well, let's transition a little bit to football. Um, you know, we've been talking about comparisons to preseason. We have some of our preseason ranks in front of us. Let me just throw out a few teams, and you tell me your opinion. Yeah. So first of all, let's start with us, the Philadelphia Eagles, the world champion Philadelphia yeah. Eagles. Um. Already, could the they pe- maybe have gotten a little lucky last year? Maybe. Uh, no, 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 take it easy, no, no easy, easy. No bitterness there. No easy. bitterness there. We yeah. both agree that Brady yeah. shouldn't have won any of his last two Super Bowls, and that he should be three <laughs> yeah. and five in the I Super mean, Bowl. Yes, I guess I don't want to go down the lucky road. It's true. No, I'm just saying. Yeah. you do agree the possibility. By the way, talk about outcome bias. We both agree Tom Brady is. If he's not the greatest quarterback of all time, he's in the top three. There's no disputing he's in the top three he's greatest one, of all time. Think, yeah. But one of the th- reasons people like to point out it, back to Josh's research, yeah. is he's 5-3 and three in the big game. Yeah. If Atlanta kicks a field goal, you know what? And Seattle doesn't oh, yeah. throw the ball yeah. when they've got the top running no, back. Again, you they could, could be, uh, I don't know, they, won a, they yeah. also lost a couple. I was going to say, saying, Tyree's catch, you know, no, and all this know, other I'm stuff. I'm just saying, but, though, yeah. it's easy. Look, mm-hmm. you agree the narrative. Yeah. If he were 3-5 and five right now in the Super Bowl, and let's be yeah. clear, he would have lost his last five. Yeah. We would not be having the discussion that we're having right now. 
Well, I think we still would be. It'd just be harder because then you sort of talk about like then you would be. I mean, he's kind of made the discussion moot over somebody like Montana. Like, like let's assume you take to have this discussion anyway. You just have to kind of put a large weight on playoff wins, you know. And 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 you know, Montana. He people would argue Montana just because Montana was perfect in Super Bowls or something like that. But I I think getting to eight Super Bowls is just more impressive, regardless of what happens, agree. than getting completely, to four. I completely and agree. And it's interesting once you talk about this specifically with Brady. I mean, we don't have to make the show about Brady like I do every time. But he has twenty seven playoff wins. Twenty seven. The next highest quarterback is Joe Montana with sixteen. He has almost twice as many playoff wins than the next highest quarterback. Well, so it's unbelievable. First of all, that's unbelievable. And yeah. then thanks Seven to our producer, Matt Dabbs, another two other reasonable yeah. guys that won a few. John Elway, yeah. 14. How about the undefeated Super Bowl champion, Terry Bradshaw, 14. Yeah. So not think about also longevity. So let's. I always like to do the following yeah. math. Maybe you don't. Let's imagine he wins four or five more play. Let's say he ends up his career with 32 playoff wins. Not an unreasonable prediction, but let's no. just say he does. If you played for 16 years and made the playoffs every year, you'd have to win two playoff games every year it's for crazy. 16 years. It's, it's crazy. crazy. Yeah. Forget just making yeah. the first of all, let's talk about the selection. Let's go yeah. back to Josh's work. Number one, you'd have to play for 16 years, at least 16 yeah. years. That's crazy. You'd have to make the playoffs because here's the way the math starts to creep on you. Let's say I say, He's great. The next player's great. They make the playoffs 12 of 16 years. All right. Well, then you basically better win three playoff games yeah. every year average for those 12 years. That's the way I love and doing he basically, this math. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I just think it is kind of mind-blowing that we just take for granted that this guy basically wins two playoff games a year. Yeah, you, you guarantee it. It's unbelievable. It. You yeah. guarantee that yeah. he's going to win two. And by the way, you and I would both agree he's the likely favorite. They're the favorite in the AFC right now. They have to be the favorite. I still think Kansas City is the favorite. Just as be, long as I that mean, game's because, in Kansas City. Yeah, that's right. And because they have, I mean, you know, the Kansas City still, I mean, Kansas City has a tough schedule, but they still have, you know, they're a game up as far as home field advantage. But not and on tiebreaker. Like no, that's right. I mean, they, they can't lose many and they, they'll, but, but, um, but no, I, I mean, I still would, I would hold KC slightly above them, but, you know, the Patriots are certainly, you know, I guess probable for the buy, which is kind of really the the main objective I think at this point for those high ranking teams. Before we get to our picks, week, any other teams surprise you? Kind of plus minus versus the expectations at the beginning of the season. The fall, uh, Atlanta, I think. I, I mean, I just I expected Atlanta to be a lot better. I mean, Green Bay, I guess as well. But Green Bay, I think it's a little bit you know. They've had a lot of injuries and stuff like that. I so guess what Atlanta also to the Falcons. Uh, well, the uh, dis- defensive injuries. I guess the Eagles, the Falcons, and the uh, Packers have all had a lot of defensive injuries, and I and I guess you know that that will do it. But um, I still think those the, the Falcons have been the most surprising to me you know, as far as I, I had high expectations for them. Another statistic I like thinking about is how many games into the season are you? Before you can't even reach your over under for the season, right? So if you think about it, the Eagles were ten and a half. Well, yeah. there's no chance the Eagles can win ten and a half games. The Falcons are at nine. We're plus or at nine. I, I don't. I don't think the Falcons can win nine games. Um, the Packers were at ten. That yeah. was their prediction. Yet yeah, they can't win ten games. So you know, if you've got four or five games left in the season and you still can't reach your plus minus for the yeah. season, you're having a bad season. That's exactly right. That's certainly true. Well, instead of talking about the whole season, we have some interesting games this week let's go to our moneyball matchup Omaha! Omaha! Wants to go to the end zone. He 
Moneyball matchups. As you know, uh, Shane, I have to let that music play for a bit because yeah. nothing gets me more excited in sports than the NFL, and that music makes me think it's almost football time. It's true, it's true. It's true. So, as you look at the matchups this yeah. week, which one has caught your eye? Well, I mean, the one that stands out above all of them, I think, is Vikings at Seahawks, just because playoff, the playoff consequences of that game are so stark. I mean, those are basically, I guess, the two teams that are currently somewhat slotted in. I mean, if the season end of the day, I think they'd be our two wildcard teams that is in the correct. NFC. Um, and so that's hugely consequential, not just in terms of them, they're, they're you know, affecting their records, but also tiebreakers. Head-to-head is such a, is, I think, the tiebreaker. It's the tiebreaker, yep. So, um, so I think that one's so hugely consequential. And the two teams are obviously really exciting to watch. Um, I... Seattle's on a roll. I kind of, I think, if I'd uh, pick this game, I would, I would take Seattle at home. Especially, I mean, Seattle at home is such a tough thing to go into and try and win anyway. So, poor yep. Vikings playing the Pats at home, but playing away against the Pats and away against the Seahawks two weeks in a row. Oof. Well, as you know, that's one of the downsides yeah, of winning doing your well division. The previous se- yeah, and doing mean- well the previous season. Yeah, doing well the previous season means you play the top team. Yeah. So I think I agree with you. I think Vikings at Seahawks is a <laughs> To say it's an important game, look, for example, the Seahawks beat the Vikings. The Vikings would drop to 6-6-1. Six, six, and one. Yeah. They could be passed. Let's talk about the teams. They could be passed by Carolina. Mm-hmm. They could. They could be passed by whatever the Philadelphia, NFC, whatever Philadelphia going on Washington, the NFC East, all of yep. those teams. I mean, yep. any of them. Matter of fact, they could easily be in the nine spot yep. if they were to lose the game. It's a massively consequential game. I, yeah, I, and, I, and, I, and I do think whatever, you know, I mean, we the Vikings, Seahawks, that game plus whatever's going on in the NFC East is going to basically give us a lot of clarity on the playoffs for, for the NFC. Well, let's transition to that game because that's yeah. my pick for the, for the Moneyball matchup is Eagles, the Eagles Cowboys. and Cowboys. Yeah. So... You know, it's showtime for the Eagles. Yeah. And so a loss in this game... Oh my game, goodness, the next few games for the Eagles. I know. Yeah. But a loss in this game would absolutely cripple the Eagles' chances. Yeah, I think I mean, at 6-7, and seven, they would definitely lose the tiebreaker to the Cowboys because they will have lost to the Cowboys twice. Um, they'd be behind so many teams in the NFC that I, I just don't see it. Especially ha- with the Rams coming up on the schedule they as well. They also have the so, Rams coming I mean, up. Yeah, no, I think I, I, I would... I would Basically, called a must win for the Eagles. But uh, you know, another thing, thanks to our producer Matt Dats, they also are playing this other team that's won a few in a row. The Texans, yeah, the that's Texans true. have won nine in a row yeah. after three losses yep. to start the yeah. season. No, so and think I mean, about the Eagles. They have to play at Cowboys. I think the, is the Ram game at the Rams. Yes. All right. So I, mean, I think three other four remaining games are on the road. All right. Well, and I know one of them's clearly at the Redskins because yeah, they yeah, still have the yeah. Redskins to play. So that's brutal. It's a brutal schedule. It's an absolutely brutal. Right, home yeah. to the Texans. But yeah, I mean, I mean, matter of fact, is their expected number of wins? Is their expected number of wins more than two in those games? Oh, I, I wouldn't even, think even so. say it's two. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm going to go out on a prediction here. Um, I think the Eagles finally get it together. Okay. I'm predicting the Eagles. Dan Loney, the host of. Uh, the, the host of Knowledge at Wharton's not. He's got a squinty face. Nah. He doesn't like my prediction that much. But that's why we. Make I think predictions. I think it'll be a close game. I'm going to take the Cowboys in that game, but I think it'll be close. I, I'm looking forward to that one. All right. Well, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I've been co-hosting this morning with my friend and colleague, Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Some combination of us, Cade Massey, Naughty Weiner, will be here every week between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your statistics. We'll see you next week on Wharton Moneyball. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.